It has been several months since we last studied 1 Corinthians, so I do need to remind you where we are in our study of this letter. We are in chapter 10, where Paul is addressing not simply Christian liberty, but the potential dangers of Christian liberty issues. And a liberty issue, as I've told you many times, but it is worth repeating, it is a reference to any issue that the Bible neither forbids nor commands us to be involved. In other words, it doesn't say anything about it. Therefore, God leaves it up to us, and thus the name liberty issue, for us to determine whether we're going to be involved in this practice or not. He just leaves it up to us. Sometimes they're called gray issues because they're not black, they're not white, they're gray. They're just not clearly spelled out in the word. Now the Corinthians had a huge problem, as you know, with the liberty issue of eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol. And that's because some in the church thought that it was perfectly fine to eat this food, while others in the church were very much opposed to eating this food because they felt that in doing this, they would be backsliding and participating in their old lifestyle, which was idolatry. And so, beginning in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul starts addressing the various issues involved in this problem in the Corinthian church. And apparently the Corinthians had written to him about this and said we need some help. And so he's addressing it. And although he makes it very clear that there is nothing inherently evil or wrong about eating food that had been offered to an idol, nothing wrong with that, he exhorts those who have no problem with this, who we would call the strong Christians, their conscience was strong when it came to this, he exhorts them to refrain from eating this kind of food in the presence of a fellow Christian, someone he calls a weaker brother, who would be bothered by this because it would spiritually harm them. Why? Since seeing a strong brother eating this food, they would be emboldened then to eat the same food, food offered to an idol, but their conscience being weak would be defiled by this, and it would then start a downward spiral in their spiritual life. Now Paul lays this all out for us, and I'll just read these verses to you in chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. He says, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, they eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, now he's addressing the strong in the church, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to an idol? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. He means meat sacrificed to an idol. So having clearly stated this, that though in and of itself there's nothing wrong, there's nothing sinful with eating any food that had been sacrificed to an idol, Paul proceeds to say, 
that the loving thing, the loving thing to do, if you love your, your brother, your sister in Christ, then those who are strong in the faith, those who are strong in their conscience, just give up your right. Give it up to eat such food for the sake of those who are weaker. That's what chapter 8 is essentially about. Paul then goes on in chapter 9 to address the issue of giving up one's rights. He just told them in essence in chapter 8, give up your right for the sake of the weaker brother. Now in chapter 9, he expands on that. How? By explaining what he personally, Paul, personally has given up in his life, namely his right to be paid for his ministry. And... At the end of the chapter, he speaks about his right to eat and drink and dress any way that he chose to eat and dress. He, he gave it all up because he said that when he was with Jewish people, he ate and he dressed like they did. And when he was with Gentiles, he ate and he dressed like they did. He said he became all things to all men so that he might win some to Christ. He gave up his rights and that's what chapter 9 is about. So, when Paul then arrives at chapter 10, he warns those who had no problem eating food sacrificed to an idol that liberty issues, though they are permissible, are potentially very dangerous. Because if one isn't careful, they can take their liberty of eating food sacrificed to an idol too far so that they actually fall into the sin of idolatry. And the reason for this is because if one isn't careful, Paul says, to curb their fleshly appetites, one can easily move from doing something that is allowed by God, namely the liberty, in this case, of eating food sacrificed to an idol, to doing something that is definitely not allowed by God, and that is practicing idolatry. <coughs> Excuse me. And to make his case about how dangerous this is, Paul uses Old Testament Israel. He goes back into the Old Testament, uses the nation of Israel as an illustration, as an example, to teach the Corinthians the necessity of curbing their fleshly appetites and not craving sinful things. Because if they don't curb their appetites and their sinful desires, then they will do exactly what Israel did and they will fall into the same types of sins that the Jewish nation fell into, one of those sins being the sin of idolatry. And thus the reason Paul writes in chapter 10, verse 6. Now, these things happen. He's talking about the Old Testament stories about Israel. These things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament is written for us to help us to learn from the past. And having stated this, the apostle then proceeded to list some of Israel's specific sins and the downward spiral that led them to fall into those sins. And then he makes his point of application. And this is where Paul is going. His point of application being that he wants them to take heed to this and, and apply it, practice it in their life. Practice what? Look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 
Now what he's warning every Christian is to make sure that you don't have the attitude that this could never happen to me. Yes, I could see Israel doing this, but I'm just too strong of a Christian to fall for that kind of stuff. Again, I'm not going to fall into immorality. I'm not going to fall into idolatry. I'm just too mature in Christ for this to happen to me. I know my Bible so well that it'll never happen to me because it just simply wouldn't because I'm beyond that. That is the very attitude, folks, that Paul is concerned about when it comes to the Corinthians because they had, they had too much confidence in the flesh. They were a proud people and an overconfidence in one's ability to practice these issues about food, sacrifice to an idol, without going too far, is the fear that Paul had for them. That you're going to think you can handle it, and you can't. With that overconfident attitude, you are going to go too far, and you'll fall into the sin of idolatry. It is one thing to eat food sacrificed to an idol. It is another thing to go into the temple when a worship service is going on, where pagans are offering their sacrifices to their idols, and participate in that. As theologian Charles Hodge put it, he said, by going to the verge of the allowable, they might be drawn into the sinful. They were trying to take it right up to the edge. How far can I go without sinning? And Paul says, no, with that attitude, you will fall. You see, it's one thing, as I said, to eat food that had been offered to an idol. That is allowable by God. In that culture and that day, that's allowable by God. But what's not allowable before him, because it is definitely sinful, is to practice some form of idolatrous worship. In other words, Paul is concerned that some of the Corinthians who understood, these people understood that an idol is nothing, so it didn't bother them. He wants them to know you're playing with fire by not guarding your hearts against the temptation of idolatry and with this lackadaisical attitude they were putting themselves in great danger of falling into idol worship. Now, I understand this may seem a bit irrelevant to you because food sacrificed to an idol is just not part of our culture. We don't even think about this. It's just not an issue. Nonetheless, the principle that the apostle is teaching is quite relevant and quite applicable because it can easily happen to you over Maybe not the issue of eating food sacrificed to an idol, but to other liberty issues or with other liberty issues. You see, there is a tendency with all of us to let our pride mislead us into thinking that we can handle any of that stuff, any kind of liberty issue, without it turning into sin. We think, and I'll just reiterate, it just won't happen to me because I'm too strong. Too much spiritual experience. I've been around long enough. I'm not going to be careless. No, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to fall into sin. I know my Bible too well. Yeah, I can see Israel doing this, but I'm not Israel. I can handle it. Won't happen to me. I'm just too spiritually minded to let this happen to me. I've studied with Pastor Steve 1 Corinthians. It won't happen to me. I know this. But that is exactly the attitude that opens the door to sin. It is this attitude of being overconfident, of putting too much stock in your own ability, your own strength to resist temptation, of being too sure of yourself that you can successfully handle any solicitation to sin that Satan throws at you. Now, listen, while, and I'll go back to this again, I know that it's hard for us today in our culture to relate to any kind of a problem of eating food sacrificed to an idol, 
We don't even think like that. It's not hard for us to see how this could happen when you think about some other contemporary liberty issues. And I mentioned some of these a few weeks ago or a few months ago when we last studied this. For example, such as a boyfriend and a girlfriend deciding to kiss each other. And though there's nothing in scripture that explicitly forbids this, so therefore we could consider kissing a liberty issue, it is dangerous. Dangerous if you're not married because if this couple thinks that they're spiritual enough to handle their emotions and their hormones so that they won't go too far physically, then they are doomed. They are doomed to fall into sin because the liberty of merely kissing will soon turn into the sin of sexual immorality with that kind of an attitude. Another similar dangerous liberty issue, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, is drinking an alcoholic beverage. Yes, it may be your liberty to drink alcohol since the scripture does not forbid it, but if you're not careful, if you're not careful, then you can easily find yourself moving from casual drinking, which is permissible, to the sin of drunkenness, which is not permissible. But in spite of the potential danger of letting things go too far in any liberty issue, and I just gave you a few contemporary ones, the Apostle Paul tells us that there's hope. There is encouragement. And that encouragement and hope is found in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure. This is a precious, precious promise. And the point of this verse is to say this, that no matter what temptation you might face, you don't have to give in to that temptation. Meaning, you don't have to sin. Sinning is not inevitable just because something is a strong temptation. And the reason for this is because, as Paul tells us, God is faithful. We just sang that great song, Great is Your Faithfulness. God is faithful. And what the apostle means by this is that God is faithful in that he is true to his word. His word says that he'll give us grace, he'll give us strength, He'll help us as we face any type of temptation, solicitation to sin. He is faithful to keep his word to strengthen us so that we can say no. See, when you and I sin, it's simply because we choose to sin. Not because we have to sin. Not because we have no choice in the matter. We don't sin because the devil made us do this. We sin because that's what we want to do. It's as simple as that. But the good news is that you never have to sin when you are tempted because God promises to be faithful to you to say no to any temptation. And how does he demonstrate his faithfulness when you're being tempted? He demonstrates his faithfulness, Paul says, by the fact that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able in other words, God will never allow you to be tempted beyond the point of your capacity to handle the temptation. He'll never put you in a tempting situation without giving you the strength to just resist that temptation and say no to it. He'll always be there to help you, to rescue you, to deliver you. This is his promise of faithfulness. So be encouraged, no matter how dangerous a liberty issue is, and no matter how weak you might feel to resist this temptation, 
to resist moving from something permissible to something that's immoral and sinful, you can be certain that God will be there to strengthen you and he will give you his grace to handle this temptation so that you can bear it without giving in to it. Now, this is where we left off in our previous study with this word of encouragement from verse 13 about God giving us the grace to handle temptation. However, Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, end of the story, you got it. We're leaving on a high note. He doesn't do that. He's told us that God will do his job in providing a way to escape temptation for us. Paul's very next statement highlights that we have a responsibility, what we are supposed to do, our job in overcoming temptation. See, knowing how easy it would be for a Corinthian to move from eating food sacrificed to an idol to engaging in idolatry in the temple whilst one of these pagan feasts are going on, Paul very bluntly and very succinctly states in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, this is a command. It's a command to flee from idolatry, and it is the subject of the next several verses, the next section, the next paragraph, the next unit of thought, until verse 22. And what Paul does in this passage is he first gives this clear command to flee idolatry, and then he gives several reasons why it is so important to flee idolatry. So what we're going to do tonight is examine this command by Paul so that we make sure that we understand what it means to flee idolatry. It's, it's a little broader than just don't go to a pagan temple. And then in the studies that follow, we'll look at the reasons the Apostle Paul gives for why we should flee. So, what does it mean to flee idolatry? Once again, let me direct your attention to verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Before we look at what, what is the concept, what, what does it really mean when we speak of idolatry, there are several things before that I want you to notice. With the first one being that Paul, notice he begins this sentence by saying, therefore. And I know that you've heard this from me and you've heard it from other Bible teachers probably many times. I'm going to say it again because it's worth saying. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? And that's because the word therefore always points back to what's just been said, just been written, and it connects us to what is about to be said. It, it is a bridge that connects what has just been said to what is about to be said. Now, what has just been said by Paul is that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what he'll give you the grace to handle. And so, now we see that although this is a really broad truth and a broad principle that applies to really any and all kinds of temptation, the specific temptation that Paul had in mind is the temptation to participate in the sin of idolatry. Secondly, so I want you to understand that's what he's talking about. Secondly, I'd like you to notice how Paul refers to the Corinthians. Notice he calls them my beloved. What a precious expression. This is a term of endearment. This is a term of affection. It basically means my dear friends whom I love. Now think about this. Think about how carnal the Corinthians were. They really were the most carnal church that Paul had to deal with. 
And think about how much grief they had given the apostle, not only by their disobedience to God and their spiritual immaturity, but also they were quite critical of the apostle Paul himself. And yet Paul loves these people. He calls them beloved. He calls them his dear friends. He tells them he loves them. What a man. What a Christian leader. What, what, a, what a pastor. What a gracious Christian gentleman the Apostle Paul was. And what an example he is to us of loving the unlovely. Paul loved these people in spite of all their problems. May we be kind. May we be gracious to high maintenance people, to problem people as the Apostle Paul was. I mean, this is a whole church of problem people and high-maintenance people. So after using the word therefore to bridge what he has just said to them, to what he is about to say, and then referring to the Corinthians as his beloved, he now tells them that in light of the danger that they themselves have, have put themselves in by eating food sacrificed to an idol, he says, therefore, you have to flee. You have to flee idolatry. And what Paul means by this is that while it is permissible to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, they are not permitted, as I said, to worship an idol. And, and to avoid falling into the sin of idolatry, they must make sure that they avoid going to a pagan temple in their city when there's an idolatrous feast going on. Paul speaks prior to this about, about eating in a temple, but the temple was used for many different functions. He's talking about don't go there when pagans are there worshiping their idols. Keep away from places like that when a service is going on. In other words, Paul is telling these Corinthians who thought they were so strong spiritually that they could handle eating food sacrificed to an idol without any kind of a problem, that they weren't as strong as they thought they were. Therefore, they should stay as far away as possible from the pagan temples when idolatrous feasts were taking place. And the way this is worded in the Greek text is that Paul is commanding them not only to flee idolatry, but to keep fleeing idolatry. That is to say, Fleeing idolatry is to be their way of life. It's to be their habitual practice. This isn't just a one-time command. This is a command that, that keeps on commanding them. And the fact that Paul tells them to flee, it speaks of the seriousness and the effort they need to make in avoiding idol worship. He didn't tell them to casually try to avoid idolatry, but to flee, to run, to deliberately and consciously move away from it. You see, in contrast to the Corinthians' attitude of seeing how close they could get to idolatry without actually falling into it, Paul tells them not to get close at all, but to flee from it. Just move away from the temple where idolatry is taking place, or you're going to fall into the sin of idolatry. It'd be like the apostle telling that young unmarried couple who think they can handle physical affection between themselves without falling into sexual immorality, to tell them, you can't flee immorality. Run from it. Don't see how close you can get to it without sinning. He would just tell them, run from immorality now while you can. Now folks, there's a critically important principle for all of us to understand and apply in our lives. It's brought out here in this passage. Remember in the previous verse, Paul has assured us that God will help us when we face temptation. 
That's what God will do. That's what he promises to do. That's his responsibility. He's told us that's his responsibility. And he will keep his word. But in telling the Corinthians then, right after this, to flee idolatry, Paul is telling us that we have a responsibility too. We're responsible when faced with a temptation to just run away from it. Whatever is tempting us, just get away as fast as you can. You see, if you have a problem with abstaining, for example, from sexual immorality, then just don't go near a place or, or someone who tempts you to fall morally. That's the point. Flee from that place. Flee from that person. That's your responsibility. Don't blame it on God. Well, he didn't give me the grace to handle this. He gave you the grace. He told you to get away. Or if you have a problem with staying sober, then don't go to a bar or a place that serves alcohol or don't hang out with people who drink a lot. Just run from all of that. That is your responsibility. It is not the Lord's. He's not going to run for you. He tells you to run. He said that he'll give you his grace when facing temptation, but it is your responsibility, your job to move away from that temptation as fast as you can. You just have to use your head in situations like that, and then flee. And that's precisely why, in the very next verse, Paul says this, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. And what Paul means by this is that he is speaking to them as sensible individuals, who, because the Spirit of God lives in them, they're capable of understanding what he's saying, they're capable of acting upon it. Therefore, he tells them to judge what he says because they are capable of seeing the truth and the wisdom of what he is saying about fleeing idolatry. He expects them to decide, that's what it means to judge, to decide to do the right thing and just obey what he's commanding them to do, flee immorality. As we've already seen, his command then is just run from it. So, the question then for us is, what is Idolatry, Because you can't flee from something unless you know what you're fleeing from. Well, obviously for the Corinthians, idolatry meant going to the temple in their city and offering sacrifices to the deities, the false deities, the false gods that pagans believed in. However, the concept of idolatry, I want you to know it's far broader than that. You see, an idol is anything, and I mean anything that demands your primary Loyalty ahead of your loyalty and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur in his commentary on 1 Corinthians explains this so well. He writes, Idolatry includes much more than bowing down or burning incense to a physical image. Idolatry is having any false god, any object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever has one's primary concern and loyalty or that to any degree decreases one's trust in and loyalty to the Lord. Now folks, based on this definition, and he's right, this is what it is in the broad biblical spectrum, idolatry then is a major temptation that all of us face. Yes, we're not living in Corinth. Yes, we don't have a temple that we're tempted to go to where pagan sacrifices are made. But idolatry is still an issue for us because we're all tempted to put certain things ahead of the Lord. Things that we worship instead of Him. Things that are more important to us than He is. What could that be? Well, just to name a few. Other people. We can make too much of other people. 
our spouse, our children, our grandchildren, our jobs, our money, our possessions. We may not bow down to these things physically, but they can become so important in our lives that they become the idols that we live for. We become obsessed with them. We must have them. We can't give them up. If that's your heart, that's an idol. Listen to what the Old Testament character Job said about how he refused to let his wealth and material possessions become his God. Remember, before Job was stricken, he was a very, very wealthy man. And he also put the worship of wealth on the same level as worshiping the sun and the moon. Listen to what we read in Job 31, verses 24 through 28. Job said, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust. He's not saying he did. He said, if I were to do this, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. He said, if I did any of those things, and I didn't, but if I did, it would be so wrong. He's saying it would be idolatry. I would put them above God. Listen, idolatry, in whatever form it takes, it's just a horrible sin. It's a horrific sin. Why? Because it diminishes God's glory. It's really, in in some respects, the sin of all sins. It diminishes God's glory. It strikes a blow at his character, because it claims by worshiping something else that there is something greater than God. This is why God denounces in the Bible idolatry with such extreme force. Listen to what he said in Exodus 34, 14. For you shall not worship any other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is jealous and it is a righteous jealousy. God is jealous for His glory because He will tolerate no rivals. Because there are no rivals. There's no one equal to Him. This is why He states in Isaiah 48 verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God does not share his glory with anything or anyone. And yet, and yet the history of mankind is totally a history of idolatry. Man replacing the worship of God with the worship of of his own inventions, his own foolish speculations. This is what Romans chapter 1 tells us about the ancient world. For even though they knew God, and of course you know it means they didn't know him in a sense that they had a personal relationship with him, they knew about him. Like people know about God today. Well, yeah, I believe God exists. That's, they knew that God existed. But they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed 
forever. Amen. This is where idolatry started, right at the beginning of man's history in the ancient world. And it continues to this day. When men reject the one true God, God turns off the lights. They reject the light of his truth, the light that they see about him from creation. God turns off the light, professing themselves to be wise. They fall into such foolishness. They invent then other deities. Listen, even an atheist worships something himself. Himself. There are many subtle forms of idolatry that we should be aware of lest we fall into them. See, anytime you defame the name of God and his character, you are guilty of the sin of idolatry. Why? Because you're belittling his glorious character. For example, if you doubt God or you fail to trust God, then you are demeaning his character. That's a form of idolatry. Doubting him, not trusting him. You're saying that God is not who he says he is. Anytime you portray him as something he's not by trivializing him, that's idolatry. So just a couple of weeks ago, Michelle and I were talking to a woman we met on a, on a cruise, and we're talking about the, the Lord, and she's sharing some things, and she said, well, something like this. She said, the man upstairs always has my back. That's what she thought of God. What a disrespectful way to speak of this glorious, holy, sovereign, supreme being. The man upstairs. He's not the man upstairs. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the creator. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the great I Am. He's not the man upstairs. Also, anytime God is reduced to an image, that's idolatry. In the Old Testament, the Lord denounced pagans who made some form of figures with their own hands and then they bowed down to them and they worshiped them. But this kind of thing goes on today when we worship images of God in artwork or even dead people, statues of them, paintings of them, like Mary, the saints in the Roman Catholic system of worship. That's all idolatry. That's idolatry. It's not respect. That's idolatry. Listen, idolatry is a serious sin, but not only because it degrades the glory of God, but it will harm you. It will harm you if you fall into it. Writing about the harmful effects of idolatry, one Bible teacher said this. He said, idolatry not only is an offense against God, but it is harmful to men. It defiles those who practice it and is harmful to everyone around them. Idolatry defiles a person by rendering him spiritually impure. Whether he worships a carved god of stone or a sophisticated god of his mind and heart, that worship has a corrupting effect on his moral and spiritual life. It has that effect both on believers and unbelievers. An unbeliever is pushed further from God and his way, and a believer violates the purity of his relationship with his heavenly father. God graciously keeps forgiving and cleansing the believer, but his idolatry is no less defiling and sinful. Idolatry harms those around the idolater by giving them a false testimony and example. It is a degrading influence on all of the society in which it is practiced, and thus our society, full of idolatry. So, if there's any idolatry in your life, any idol, something that is pulling your loyalty, your devotion away from Christ, anything you have enthroned in your heart other than the Lord, 
then you have to let it go. You have to repent. You have to confess it as sin and change your mind and change your behavior. So like Paul, I'm confident that I'm speaking, those I'm speaking to are wise people. I speak to you as wise people, people who have the Spirit of God in them so that I can call you to choose to do what's right by denouncing anything that you hold too dear in your heart. Just let it go. Person, your job, your hobby, your money, your comforts, your conveniences. There's nothing in and of themselves wrong with any of that. You just have to make sure that they haven't become the idols that you just care too much about. Listen, in my life, I constantly have to repent over my love of baseball and in years past, my love of, of running. That's just the way it is for a Christian. We, we go too far and the Spirit of God convicts us and we have to repent and give that stuff up. So I call you to do that. And if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, then the primary object of your idolatry is yourself. Yourself. You've made yourself the center of your world, the center of the universe. And in living for yourself and for your happiness and fulfillment, you have put yourself on a throne. You have exalted yourself. That's the sin of all of us before coming to, to Christ. But if that's still you, then you need to take yourself off of the throne by turning from your idolatry of yourself and placing your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Believing in his death on the cross as the payment for sin that secured salvation. And in doing that, what happens is you will not be simply trusting him as your savior. You'll be enthroning him as your Lord. The center of the universe becomes your Lord, the center of your life. I urge you to do that if you've never trusted Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is a convicting passage of Scripture. We'd like to think it is just for the Corinthians and that it doesn't apply to us. But all of us, all of us, Lord, battle with idolatry. We sometimes put people on a pedestal. We sometimes put things, money, possessions, our homes. All that, Lord, our, our hobbies, our, our love of sports. All on a pedestal, Lord. Help us to keep these things in perspective. We, we understand we're not legalists. We understand we don't have to do away with all this stuff. But we do need to keep it in perspective. And I pray that if um, those listening tonight realize, yes, I've gone too far. I, I have too much loyalty, too much devotion to something. I need to, get, to deal with that and repent. I pray you'll work in their hearts. Lord, I also pray for those who perhaps are taking their liberty issues too far. I pray that you'll help them to realize that they're playing with fire and that they have to be careful and that they in and of themselves don't have the strength to say no, but your grace is sufficient and help them, Lord, to be wise and to run from falling into sin. And for those who may not know you, Lord, either here or watching or listening, I pray that you'll deal in their hearts, Lord, that they would recognize that they have made themselves their own idols. They worship themselves and that they have made themselves the center of their universe and they would repent of that and trust you as their Savior as well as their Lord. We ask this as we look to you, confident that you can do anything you choose to do in someone's life. We pray this in your name. Amen.